If you want to be at the tip of the spear of sports performance, the answer is simple. Simply Faster is your insider's edge to maximize results with the highest quality premier sports equipment in the business. Visit Simply Faster and level up. Welcome, everyone, to the Companions of the Compendium Podcast. Today, I have Coach Scott Christensen. If that name rings a bell, you've probably seen his work either with Latif. He's instructed you at a level one or level two USATF uh, school. He's been in the game for a while now and has wrapped up numerous state championships in cross country and track and field as a team. He's had 27 individual state champs and he is known for his work in distance, but he has also put together complete teams, both in cross country and track and field. He is in many ways, the professor Emeris of distance education around the country and has provided value for years and years and years, even decades now, for many coaches to figure out how to do the sport, how to train, how to coach, and how to be a leader uh, for teams. So it is a joy, pleasure, and I am super excited to have you on, Coach. How are you doing? Hi, Ryan. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, that was quite the introduction. Uh, being, I guess, emeritus means I've gotten quite old. Uh, yeah, I have been at this for a while. I still love it. I'm still pumped. I still get excited to coach. Uh, we're in the middle of uh, our summer program in cross country. I just I'm looking forward to the season. Uh, and I've got a lot of coaching ed coming up. So I'm just just loving life. Awesome, man. Well, it's super, super exciting to have you on here and been a big fan for a long time. So when we talk about the coaching, we know the results that have come over time. We know the accomplishments that you've put together consistently, and they are uh, amazing to, to not try to be hyperbolic, but it's, it's impressive. So th considering that, though, for the few people that don't know who you are, don't know your story, talk a little bit about your evolution into the sport and maybe a couple mentors along the way that were critical for your development um, to be the coach who you are today. Well, sure, Ryan. I love talking about myself. Uh, it's not very colorful. I was uh, a quiet uh, kid. I lived in rural Minnesota, um, uh, 50 miles from the Twin Cities. And I had a uh, ninth grade science teacher who I adored. And uh, he also happened to be the cross country coach. And at the end of my ninth grade year, he invited me out for the cross country team the next year with one sentence, would you be interested in coming out? I didn't know anything about the sport, nothing. Um, but I checked out with checked it out with some people that I found out were on the team. And, and I, I, I went out because of that coach who I thought so much of. And I had great parents. Uh, this coach just happened to fill another spot in my life. So uh, I had a not a spectacular high school career, but a pretty good high school career. Um, and I was able to uh, run in college, uh, Division Three. I ran at Gustavus, and um, that's uh, a pretty strong MIAC conference uh, in Minnesota. And uh, I did, did pretty well there and was captain of my cross country and track teams. Uh, uh, so I stuck it out and, and then uh, I had all this uh, training in me and this is now the late 70s. So it's like, well, what do you do now? So um, I moved right into the marathon and uh, I opened up about a year after I graduated in college with the 234 marathon and 
figured I could do something with that and uh, ended up running Boston 10 times and New York and Chicago and, and, and never hit an Olympic uh, trial standard. And that's, of course, what I was trying to hit. Never quite hit that, came close, but never hit it. Uh, and along the way, because of really my influence in my high school um, coach, I also wanted to be a science teacher. My mom, who was a teacher, begged me not to go into teaching, uh, not because of the money or, or anything. She just thought, she, one day she sat me down and she said, Scott, you're so quiet. Uh, these kids are going to eat you alive. You don't, you don't want to be in front of a classroom full of kids. I, I know. And I said, but I think I would really like it. And because I love science and um, so I, I graduated with a, a, a degree in biology and chemistry and uh, immediately began teaching and coaching. And I was able to maintain teaching, coaching and marathon training for about five years. And my teams weren't that good. Um, and now that I look back on it, it's because I was spending a lot of time doing my own thing, you know, and, and, and a lot of tempo running, a lot of things that 10K road runners and marathoners do. And the kids were just kind of tagging along. I think they were having fun doing it. Uh, we just didn't, um, we, we were like conference champs or maybe second or third in the conference, but nothing really at the state level. And, uh, and then in the late 80s, I uh, started concentrating on um, coaching. I'm still, I still run a lot. I'm still running 45 miles a week, but not serious about racing or anything like that. So uh, I got into coaching and like I do with a lot of things, I did a deep dive. Um, I, I knew that I couldn't continue to coach like I was coached, which is how I was coaching the kids. Um, things change, uh, uh, just, just scientific knowledge had changed. So uh, I got into uh, coaches at it just about the right time, right? Kind of at it, it, its infancy um, um, and did my, you know, level one, level two and, and um, in endurance and then went back and did a level two um, in sprints and hurdles. And along the way, I, I just had tremendous mentors. You talk about mentors. Um, my level two, I spent so much time with Lauren Seagrave, who I, I grew to become a huge Lauren Seagrave fan, Gary Winkler fan. Um, on this, this distance side, um, it was Joe V. Hill uh, and Gary Wilson. Um, and um, I must have, I don't know how, but it was a surprise to me. I must have somehow um, impressed somebody or something as a student in the coaching ed program, because one day in 1994, I believe, I was asked to kind of apprentice as an instructor. So I actually went down to the University of Missouri in Columbia, which okay. where the school was uh, in 95. And um, they, I taught a couple of, of the endurance courses in level two and they hired me on the spot. And 
um, um, I've been with that core group of instructors ever since. And I've learned so much from that. I mean, I've always, I put myself in the room and just shut up. I mean, that's kind of my goal in life is to put myself in the room where all the action is and mm -hmm. just sit in the corner and shut up. And, and Boo Schechnader, uh, Gary Winkler, Al Schmidt, Joe V. Hill, um, uh, Lauren. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, you know, level two is great as you're a student, but now think of how much the instructor, Dennis Shaver, now think of how the instructors who live together and eat together for a week and then prep, uh, uh, meet in Dallas in January and prep for a weekend. All of the talk and all of the, all the things I've learned from from them uh, over the years, um, uh, they—it's—it's it's been a tremendous experience, and and I'm not afraid to admit I'm uh, uh, that that I am a product of coaching education in this country. Uh, I believe strongly in coaching education um, because otherwise you would do what I was headed down the road doing, and that was trial and error coaching with a lot of principles that were given to be by my high school and college coaches, but you can't have that sort of program. It has to continue to tweak and evolve slightly over the years, or it's just gonna be the same as it always is. So uh, uh, Ralph Mann in biomechanics and just a lot of information was given to me. And I, 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 I just not only applied it at Stillwater, but I wrote things and um, uh, spoke at state clinics and 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 to, make, and to kind of wrap up the story, I was selected to be the the, the team leader um, for the 2008 World Cross Country Team for the U.S. and that was in um, Scotland. I had been the 2003 junior team leader um, in Switzerland. Um, and then my turn came to lead the, the whole contingent in 2008. And when I got home from that um, um, trip, out of the blue, uh, Latif called me and said, man, I'm looking for somebody in distance and your name, your name pops up. Uh, Boo Sexnader has given his highest uh, recommendation. Uh, would you would you do, would you, can we get started on this? So <laughs> we started with some early stuff that I think is still out there for sale, but it progressed into some pretty good curriculum. And I think that's how most people now know me. I mean, all the emails I get each day, I, I, I there's not a day goes by that somebody who I don't really know uh, has written to me and, and obviously bought some product from Latif and wants me to review a workout or a season plan or something. Um, and, you know, I love that. I mean, it, it, it's Christmas day. People are sending me 4th of July. I got four emails on, 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 would you look this over? I'm setting up my fall workouts. And it's like, I tell my friends, these, these coaches never sleep. They never take a day off. These emails come. Uh, each and every day and and it's fun and I, I try to be honest I try not to be controversial I try to just present the science uh, not everybody agrees with me um, but that's how science works it's 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 it 
it's it's there's the, the evidence of science, but then there's how you apply it, and there's interpretation in both areas. Um, so um, it's I, I I can't really believe how this has all evolved over the years, but um, I sure love it, and and it gives me a chance to be on a podcast like this, and I never. This is a long way from my mom saying, don't become a teacher because you're not cut out for it. So, uh, you know, that's where we are. There's some amazing opportunities and and fate-driven situations because we're obviously talking about, we're going to talk a lot about science and things like that as well, I'm assuming in our talk today. But one of the coolest things is, hey, you think, what do you think about coming out and joining the team? And from that tiny, tiny little morsel, that tiny little kernel, that tiny little seed blossomed this life where you're getting to bump shoulders with Gary Wilson and Gary Winkler and Lauren Seagraves and Joe V. Hill and Buchek Schneider and this entrepreneurial crazy man, Latif Thomas, yeah. who, you know, and, and I don't get nearly, I'm sure, as much of the hit ups that you're getting with all these other coaches from around the country, but it does fill my heart up to hear that because you're, you're continuing to provide value and, and opportunities for these coaches and helping them, which is great for them. But even more important is all of the people that they're going to get to work with are going to benefit from a coach that you had in the 1970s that asked you, Hey, do you want to come out for this? And if you think about the magic of how that timeline expands and gets filled up from that moment it's it's really really cool and it's really awesome to consider the fact that like for over decades you've improved not only those coaches but the athletes and then because those athletes are getting better coaching because of the work that you've done through your deep dives and interactions that there are athletes in american track and field and american cross country and distance running that is wholesale better in large part because of the work that you've done. And that's, if you sit back and I I don't know how much you think about that, but if you sit back and think about that, it's, it's, it's uh, humbling, but it's also, wow, what an awesome responsibility and what an awesome thing that you've done for the sport. It's impressive, Scott. Well, thanks. I, it's definitely humbling. I, I try not to, uh, uh, think too much about the enormity of it because I don't want to lose sleep at night. I'm, I'm the type that I don't want to feel like heaviness on my shoulders when it comes to other programs. But what, what really has been special, and I, I truly mean this, it brings tears to my eyes actually, is when, um, uh, and I've had probably, I would say over the last 10 years, maybe 25 emails from coaches who are so joyful because their team either won the state or were placed very high in the state or had an individual. I don't want to just measure things by being state champions, but these, these particular emails stand out and they were just saying they could never have done it without just advice from me and, and, and just direction from me. And I, I just keep, I write back to them. You're the coach. I just gave you some advice. I just gave you a step or two uh, along the way that, that, that I'm glad you took. Um, but the bottom line is you are the coach. I coach coaches. I'm not an internet coach. 
Um, I don't have any athletes. Uh, uh, Tim Mann's a very good friend of mine, but I, I don't coach like he does. I coach coaches and I, I, I don't want to um, ever get in. I don't think I could ever coach athletes online, but um, just being able to help out coaches is um, joyful because you never know what direction life goes. You, you just, you, you absolutely don't know. Um, and, and, and that's good because a lot of good things happen in life. A lot of bad things happen in life too that you just don't know. So I, I talk to my kids about living in the moment, just absolutely living in the moment and then when the virus hit, um, the kids and I were talking uh, on Zoom one day and they said, you know, all of that stuff you always talk about, Scott, living in the moment, we just kind of thought it was about the meat and, and, and now we're finding out it's about our life. And, and yeah, I had no way of knowing a virus was gonna hit, but kind of the training and the mentality that I had with living in the moment um, with the athletes over the years, uh, I think helped them through, you know, dealing with the, the virus and, and being away from school, their friends, being away from me, the team, whatever. It's tough for kids, um, tough for a lot of people, um, but um, you just never know what the, the next step is gonna be. Without a doubt. And, and that's why I think it's like help everybody you can without sacrificing big portions of your life. And, and also I think the message is to a lot of coaches who are listening in today, like ask the athlete, build that relationship, step into that person's life. Even if that person, you know, you said you had a great mom and dad and mom was an educator kind of understands the, the deal. But if you don't do those things, you might be missing out on not just opportunities for yourself as a coach to have a more competitive program or a competitive team, but changing the trajectory of an individual kid's life. Like that coach changed your life. You're changing the lives of many coaches. And by doing that, you're changing the lives of their athletes. You're changing their programs. You're changing the opportunities that these kids are going to get. And it's incredibly powerful. Now, speaking of some of the advice that you give coaches, I kind of look at your system from a, from a 30,000 foot view and go, it's a system that respects like global improvement in a lot of different areas, building a better athlete, not just building a better distance runner. And um, also I feel like it shows your deep dives that you've done to pull from all these different coaches and their different philosophies where it doesn't look just like, you know, Joe V Hill in, 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 it's not just a carbon copy of that. It's where you've mixed all of these different influences from speed, endurance, power, strength, sports psychology. So talk to the audience a little bit about how that philosophy developed. How do you categorize it? And then maybe like three things that you find that are really important in your training that you believe needs to be in an athlete's training all year round. Yeah, the I, I was in a I was with Al Schmidt and really Al Schmidt, I got to give him a lot of credit at, at Mississippi State. Um, Tiffany McWilliams coach and a bunch of other good, good athletes that he coached. Uh, he always I talk about getting into the room um, and I've always talked about that. That's not something I just thought up for this podcast. Al put me in a lot of rooms and 
uh, I was in a room early on in my development of all of this stuff. And Peter Teagan was there and Peter was the Susie Favors coach and just an excellent um, coach at Wisconsin. They went on to Stanford and um, it was, uh, coaches were kind of batting things around and it was like, uh, mileage here intensity there just a lot of things and peter never really said a word and 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 finally somebody said peter what do you think and peter just looked out at me and the four or five people that were there and said distance runners have to work very hard and it 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 just stuck with me so the question for me became how do you work very hard, but yet recover? Because that's when you get better. I mean, recovery has to be um, something that's closely monitored, monitored from athlete to athlete and, and super closely watched. And, and uh, uh, you're always, uh, you know, you're always dealing with under recovery. There's no such thing as overtraining. The issue is under recovery. Um, that's the real issue. So I thought, well, how can I make my, ath my athletes better um, um, and still just kind of following the principles of, of recovery? And um, it was just kind of a deep dive into understanding the basics of uh, you know, aerobic running, aerobic training, um, which is the bulk of work you do as a distance runner, um, even a half miler um, uh, does more than 50% of his work probably, or her work in, in, in endurance running. And then, but how do you squeeze in the higher intensity stuff too? And, um, and, and it was at that point I started seeing, well, Bowerman had it, who was not a physiologist. Bowerman was a great coach and a great motivator and a great everything, but he wasn't a physiologist. So when he said hard day, easy day, um, he's, he's right, but he's not completely right. And, but coaches kind of took it that as, okay, there's the sound bite I'm looking for. If I go hard today, then it's gotta be easy tomorrow. And it might have to be easy another day beyond that. Um, I figured out that you could tax one part of uh, the energy system. We're talking about metabolism now. So we could tax one part of the energy system, allow that to recover the next day while working the other part of the energy system on maybe on the anaerobic side or the alactic side. Um, um, while the aerobic side's recovering, the anaerobic side can be working hard. And, um, and that's kind of what the, the, the whole program I've got with Latif and really it's become the, uh, you know, the program of both USF, USTF, CCA and of USATF is, is hard, easy, yes, but hard, easy on the various energy systems, not on the whole body. Uh, so that was, uh, that that was a key moment and it was more than a moment it took years of development uh but then the other side of it is it's not all metabolic 
it's 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 just not all energy systems um uh throwers could care less about metabolism jumpers they <laughs> nobody can invite me to speak at a a, a jumps uh, uh clinic because what i talk mostly about is metabolism they're they're not worried about metabolism so um but distance runners also have things beyond metabolism and it became a fascination with me to reduce ground con ground contact time. I was totally convinced uh, that people get faster by reducing ground contact time and the ways I needed to do that. And uh, Ralph Mann, one of the top uh, track, and he works with golf as well, but he's one of our top biomechanists in this country. He steered me to, and we had hours of talk about reducing ground contact time um, um, and then um, Gareth Sanford came along and, and uh, didn't invent the term uh, anaerobic speed reserve, but certainly flowered out the concept. And, you know, it, it's based on if you want submax velocity to get faster, then max velocity has to get faster. It does not work in reverse. It has to be if you want submax to be faster. Max has got to be faster because submax is a percentage of max velocity. Um, but uh, so it became days, and it's in my programs where if you show up at track practice, you would think you're at a sprint practice. And a lot of endurance coaches, especially endurance coaches that spent a lot of time in the 80s, like, hold it, you know, you're giving that sort of work at that sort of intensity. And the reason I'm giving that sort of intensity or, or allowing that sort of intensity is because I'm giving lots of recovery in between reps. I mean, that's, that's not how endurance coaches think. They think short recovery is, is better. I mean, they, cause that's what more simulates the race. You know, I only give a minute. I only give 90 seconds. We'll, we'll do 400s but we'll only do a minute or 90 seconds. And I'm not saying don't do that workout because that workout has a place, but so does eight by 400 at 800 meter pace. And in order to do that for eight, you're gonna have to allow, depending on the athlete, somewhere about four minutes, maybe even five minutes recovery between each one uh, in order to, to, to maintain that. And um, so then it became uh, the fascination with getting faster, which is reducing ground contact time. And then working with Vern Gambetta, and, and I, he's just an excellent mentor of mine, and I'm part of the gain network that he's got going and, and things. I love it because uh, it takes me outside of endurance. Um, uh, but he, he has, he, you know, he, he, he's really pushed me into the knowledge you never get far from race pace all year long. All year long. Now that doesn't mean you're going to run a mile race or a two mile race all year long. It might you just might do a small segment of it, but you're still running race pace, um, and you never get away from max speed work. And I'm talking about max true speed. I'm not talking about just the concept of speed in general. I'm talking about flying thirties, um, uh, which we do at Stillwater, and, and I promote it to to any athlete, any coaches that'll listen is um, you don't have to periodize max velocity work um, as long as you do it in a proper way with the proper 
parameters in the workout, you can do max velocity work, let's say 25 times during a calendar year. So that's winter in Minnesota <laughs> on a black parking lot. Uh, <laughs> that's in the summer and that's in the season. You do 25 sessions over a four year career. That's a hundred max velocity sessions for a distance runner. And, um, um, and it, it would be six to eight times flying thirties with four minutes recovery in between. Most endurance coaches shake their heads. My own athletes shake their heads. New at what? I'm, I'm, I'm distance run. No, we're working and and and, um, and you know I keep records. I time. I don't time every session, but I do time uh, our uh, max velocity work. And a guy like Blankenship, who wasn't particularly fat, uh, Ben Blankenship, he was eighth in the Olympics. He ran for Stillwater. Um, as a ninth grader, uh, he was four point high for flying thirties, uh, not out of block. I'm talking about flying thirties from beam to beam, but by the time he was a 408, you know, miler, um, his senior year, he had cut a second off his flying 30 times. He was three point mid for, um, that. And if my top miler is not on our mile relay, and we have good, good, good mile relays here. So we're 320 or under, which is good for Minnesota. If my top miler is not on there, I'm scratching my head because then I don't have a good miler. It's like we emphasize speed development. We emphasize endurance, but we also uh, emphasize speed development. And there's lots of other things we, we can talk about and emphasize, you know, the hills that I've taken from the Lydiard system. Um, um, None of this stuff is, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night with an aha moment. It was, I studied Lydiard. I took, I, I, I took stuff that I thought was fantastic from Lydiard. I took fantastic stuff from V-Hill on aerobic power, VO2 max work. Uh, I took great stuff from the sprinters, Lauren Seagrave. I spent so much time in Atlanta with Lauren, um, um, and he taught me how to do it. And then Gary Winkler, they just taught me how to do it. I mean, they, they, they taught me what the difference between speed and speed endurance is. Now, I'm as an endurance coach and training endurance people, I'm not that worried about acceleration, but I am worried about speed and speed endurance. So I, am, I do emphasize that. I, I emphasize that. 2004, I was chairman of USATF Endurance Education. Brooks Johnson was my boss. He was in charge of all of high performance, including the Olympic team. And he said, Scott, why are we taking 10,000 meter runners uh, to Athens and Sydney who you have to run 52 seconds to medal in the last lap, but their PR is 54 seconds. Why are we taking athletes like that to the Olympics when they've got no hope? Um, and, and, you know, because we, we, the U.S. is the last country to have a complete track and field team, Olympic track and field team. So that's why we do it. But I understood the question. Those runners didn't have the tools. And you know, when Rupp came along, that's when people, they could listen to me preach about this for 10 years. But until you watched Rupp and saw what Alberto was doing with Rupp, which is most of the stuff I talk, I didn't, I'm sure Alberto figured it out on his own. And from similar people, I, he and I don't share any information, but Rupp was doing tons of, of max velocity work, uh, special endurance, one work with pretty long periods of recovery, you know, four or five minutes recovery. 
or during the peaking period, 10, 12 minutes of recovery. So it, there's an emphasis on, um, on aerobic power, which is just another term for VO2 max. And then there's a emphasis on aerob anaerobic capacity, which is how damn fast you are. You know, how fast are you when you're fresh? And a physiologist told me, Jack Ranson, who was head of medicine for four Olympics, he, and he did a lot of practical work in the lab. He, he kind of said, you know, a ballpark number he's seen, and he worked also with V-Hill, but a, a, a ballpark number he'd seen was you take a kid's top end PR 400 in a relay. You can use a relay split or open 400 or a time trial. However you determine mark is, let's say it's 52 seconds. In a race, the last lap, which is at the critical zone, after you've come out of the comfort zone, once you're in the critical zone, you should be able to be about seven seconds slower than that. Now I'm talking about high school kids, not Olympians. They're not 45 seconds to get to 52, but high school kids who need to close in about 58 in a mile race to be a factor off a of, you know, fairly hard comfort zone, they got to be 51, 50 or so. And that's good enough to get on our mile relay. So it's, it's a real emphasis on, uh, speed, but also an emphasis on endurance. I know that's a long answer, but that's how it all developed. Well, that's why we got you on here. I mean, nobody wants to hear me talk about this stuff. I want, I want these guys to hear all your details and, and the nuances to the system, not to, gosh, not to co-sign too strongly on, on what you're saying, but interestingly enough, like, and it, I, you're probably a big part of it in a roundabout way when I was getting that stuff from Latif that you had put together and all this, like when I'm trying to create system in general, my own philosophy, which, you know, I called it the critical mass system, but it's basically giving each one of these biomotor abilities it's due within your training and then not letting my bias one way or another dictate why I'm giving this biomotor ability it's due. Instead, I'm trying to use the science and best practitioners in action of the science to create a beautiful Frankenstein in a training system that's functional. And when I'm hearing you talk about all this kind of stuff, you're, you're obviously valuing the speed because it's so naturally underserved amongst many distance coaches in the distance community. And when they hear, oh my God, four to five minutes, you know, for a rep, well, like as a sprint coach, we might do two four fifties and three one fifties in a practice. There's 15 minutes recovery between mm -hmm. that four fifty or three fifty. And and the kids are like, hey, can we just kind of get this thing done? It's like, no, no. Well, I want to give the maximum amount of recovery that I can get in practice and still have a practice that gets done in a reasonable hour um, and then come back and hit it again. And then maybe a couple more times, but there's going to be a lot of stand around time because we have to give the speed, the velocity, the work, its value, its due, or we're not getting the adaptations we want from the particular athlete. And you've done that with your system. Um, and I, we have a problem with that too. When the kids are doing flying thirties, which I got from you, which we might start with six and go all the way up to 10, right. you know, and we have that in our, that we have that in our training weekly because of you. And they're like, are we really going to wait around here for three minutes or so? Yes. Yeah. Or we're not getting the adaptation right. that we want from this particular training. So 
when you talk about these particular workouts and their purpose and where what what you're trying to achieve, what's the rhythm look like for you in a week or two weeks of a microcycle? And why does that rhythm play out the way that it does? Why? How have you justified from all of your experience, knowledge, and deep dives to lay out these type of workouts that you've mentioned and the aerobic work as well in your one week or two week microcycles? And that becomes a problem, not necessarily with my program, uh, because I've kind of got it the way I want it, but it becomes a problem when dealing with other coaches. Uh, and it's based on, on two issues. Uh, there's never any problems. They're just challenges and issues, but we're down. My distance runners are down to racing once every couple of weeks. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to apologize for it. I think it's great. We have a lot more track meets but I kind of spread the distance runners around so that some are home while others are running and, and so on. Um, I think a lot of workout rhythm is based around how many races you've got. So when I start with the statement, well, we race every couple of weeks and that's cross country and track right away. Lots of coaches are saying, well, we run two meets a week. So they would be running four meets in the time I'm running one meet. And then I'll mention, well, tell me about the race as well. You know, we go to an invitational on Saturday, but the Tuesday meet is a duel. And that's really important uh, because that's how you win the conference or something like that. Or it's, they're not a head coach. So their head coach is saying it's important, whatever the reason. Um, so your rhythm looks much different if you're always prepping for races or recovering from races. And I'm not a, this is just a, a, an aside, a personal deal. I, I'm not a big, well, just treat the race like a workout. Uh, I've never heard a basketball coach or a football coach or uh, any other coach of any other sport say, yeah, I, I know we got a game today, but you know what? Let's just kind of work on team strategy or let's take it easier. I mean, it's, it's like, if it's a race, it's, it's going to be a race. I mean, that's just how it is. And, and so, um, but I understand there are coaches that, that do that. And I'm poorly of them. It's just, I, I'm not in that, in that, um, that corner with, with them on it. So now that we've kind of laid those ground rules out my, um, so I, I, I work off, um, a 12 day microcycle. And it doesn't matter what, I don't even pay attention to the days of the week. I mean, I really don't. Um, uh, when I speak of this 12 day microcycle, across country, I use nine days because you got to do less different things. Uh, but in middle distance runners and track have to do so many different types of workouts to run the full spectrum of uh, metabolic and muscular system stimuli that you need 12 days. So. Um, they'll say, well, but hold it. It ends on a Thursday and we, it doesn't matter what day it does forget, forget that right off the bat. And, and, um, um, we, we, so I run a 12 day uh, and advocate a 12 day, uh, microcycle. And of course, during those 12 days, there will be at least a Sunday and maybe two Sundays and maybe for religious reasons, social reasons, psychological, whatever, you, you take Sunday off with your team. That's not an issue. That's a recovery day. And you write recovery day on whatever the Sunday is. 
or two in that 12, you rate recovery, mileage is zero, but it's a recovery day. So don't tell me, well, they didn't run Sunday and then Monday we came back with an easy run. No, that's not how train, that, that gets away from what Peter Deegan said, or what I mentioned earlier. So the first thing I do on a 12 day um, microcycle when I just list days one through 12 is I put the race in or two, depending on how it fits uh, in that time of year. Um, so the races go in, then I put the Sundays in. Uh, now I'll, I'll tell you, on my team, I have three training groups. I got 75 distance runners. Um, I've got a group called Novice, which are training age of zero and one. Then I've got the Emerging, which are um, uh, training age like two, a lot of threes are in there. And then my experience group is training age four. Um, my novices, they never run on Sundays. I mean, I give them Sundays off. So. But when you get up into my top training group, my experience group, we run seven days a week. I mean, that's what we do. We run seven days a week. And uh, um, I give them, I got this from V Hill. Um, I give them a day off about every 23 days. And um, his kind of research and his practical experience and in, a, in a, an experienced runner uh, who thinks a four mile run is kind of a nothing work. I mean, you, that's kind of the mindset Well, you get to be experienced when a four mile run doesn't frighten you. Um, they still need a day off. And, and, you know, I advocate about every 23 days off. And if I look at, see kids kind of fatigued and stale, I'll say, when was your last day off? Well, it was 27 days ago. I said, I should have told me um, no matter what we're doing that day, I'd give them the day off. Even if it was like, I thought the, hardest work of the whole season was today if he said scott i haven't had a day off in 25 days i would say you're going for a jog or your, your day is zero so i put the race and then the, the 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 sundays in and then i start building the rest of the workouts around what workouts um just generally need 24 hours to recover from um and what workouts are so taxing, they need kind of 48 hours to recover from. Um, if I do eight by 400 um, hard, let's say three minutes at uh, 60 seconds, 61 seconds, that's a definite two day recovery from it. But it doesn't mean the day after I'm doing a straight recovery day, I, I might, but I might also follow it up with um, a long run because Eight by 400 is a high hydrogen ion producing day. The fatigue is not caused by lack of fuel. It's not caused by um, any sort of uh, aerobic fatigue whatsoever. It's strictly anaerobic fatigue. Whereas the next day, the long run, um, that doesn't have an anaerobic component to it at all. So we're, we're recovering from the anaerobic work with a, a long run. Um, and um, so I'll, I'll put in uh, the 48-hour the uh, workouts, um, and then, then I'll fit the 24-hour recovery workouts around it. And then pretty soon I've covered everything I've wanted to do, all four or five aerobic workouts I've wanted to do and all four or five 
anaerobic workouts I've wanted to do. Um, the racer two is in there and that's basically your 12 days. Uh, so eight flying thirties. And I know a sprinter would walk away from that workout. If you did eight flying 30 and, and I don't want to speak for any sprint coaches, but I, I, I think I know that. And I tell my kids, you know, if you're a sprinter, you'd have a nice long warm up, which we do. Then you do the eight by flying thirties. They probably wouldn't even do eight, but let's say they did do eight flying thirties. They're not going to tack on any distance run after that. And, and for a couple of reasons, number one, they don't need to, but number two, there is some mixed research on, on, on whether the neuromuscular system gets confused when you, when you tack, um, but I don't, you know, I'm training distance runners, not sprinters. So I want them to get faster, but I also need to run some miles. So we'll tack on a four mile easy, you could even call it a cool down run, but a four mile continuous run after the flying thirties. Um, now that that's a high a lactic day. There's been theoretically no lactic at no lactate produced, no hydrogen ions produced. If I allowed enough recovery and the run was short enough, kept it at flying thirties. The only thing that happened that day was um, type two fiber uh, fatigue. Okay. So there's no metabolic issue at all, but there is some muscular neuromuscular fatigue. If I followed that the next day with a tempo run or CV critical velocity intervals at about uh, at true, at true, likely threshold pace, which is 85% VO2 max or critical velocity pace, which is 90% of VO2 max. That's a mostly aerobic workout. And there's no problem with that. Now you're working hard both days, but they're distinctly different. One system's recovering while the other's working. That would be my experienced group. And, you know, Younger developing teams look at that and say, my kids would quit if we did that. Then you're not quite at that. This is what you're aspiring to tone it down. Then, then follow it the next day with a game. I mean, if that's, what's going to keep kids, number one, you need kids on your team. So if you need to play a game um, to keep kids content, happy, and, and keep your squad big, then, then do whatever you need. But if you're asking me physiologically, can you do that? Yes, you can do that. You can follow up. Those kind of workouts work very well together. Something that's very alactic or, or, or even um, lactic, uh, followed by something that's basically aerobic. There's no problem with that. And, and people say, well, but I don't do it that way you know, and I, I still get kids to run, you know, you can, there's a lot of different ways. And I'm talking about just boys now, just, just talking about boys. I tell coaches, there's a lot of ways to get kids down to about 430. You can, you can, you could do it probably, which is mileage. I mean, truthfully, you could just not even have a coach just right here, run six miles a day or uh, not six, but eight miles a day. And, and, uh, and do some strides at the end of practice. And if you keep it up and you stay healthy, you could probably by your senior year get down to 430. But there's a huge difference 
between 4.30 and 4.15. And to, to, to close that gap, you're not gonna be able to do it with just what you did to get to 4.30. And that's where a lot of coaches go off the rail. They see a kid develop, they see a kid develop, kid gets down to like 4.28 and they just keep doing what they were doing thinking that's the stimulus I need. And they, they'll, then they'll leave and then they're thinking, oh, that kid's gonna get to 420. No, they're not. No, they're, because your workouts aren't intense enough. So then that's how, when you add in the intensity and that's, that, that's, that's the key. So um, um, you can do as Peter Teagan said, work really hard. Now there are just some days you just need a day, <laughs> either a day off, like I said, about every 23 days, but. There are some days, you know, it's just like, guys, let's go for a five. Let's just go for a five mile. Easy. I don't, I don't care. Leave your watches at home. I don't, I don't even care. I don't even care. It's five miles, you know, just go out for uh, 40 minutes, 35 minutes. And, and um, I, I talk a lot of training with Marcus O'Sullivan at Villanova and, and he's of course run so many sub four minute miles and we did some clinics together. So we got to be really good friends and, 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 he told me a couple of really important things and, and I've already mentioned this once earlier in this talk, but you want your experience group, not your novice, not your emerging, but your experience group with, for some teams might be one or two people. For me, it's like 10, but you, you, you want your experience group, no matter what their talent is, but they, they've been with you for four years, they've trained with you. You, you can't do anything with their genome, you know, one of them at 415, but the other one's at 450, but they've done basically about the same amount of work. In that group, you want the mindset that when you go out and run four miles, it's like an absolute off day. It's an off day. You're a runner, so that's what you do. And, and if you need a day, then you go out. And Vihil will say the exact same thing. It's like... V Hill is, he's so against taking any time off. Um, I mentioned that I advise high school coaches. It depends on if they're in another sport or not, but let's say they're not. Let's say they're just runners. They're out for cross country and track. I said, they still need 10% of their year away from running. That's six weeks. No, you don't need that. You don't. Joe, the people you recruit, people you work with, don't. They're older. These kids, they need they need to catch up on their growth and development. They need to restore some energy. They they just need to do some fun things away from running a little bit. But you know, during the season, it's um, you run. I mean, that's what you do. So, so how do you handle well, a couple things? First of all, number one. Uh, Cause I didn't mention it earlier, but the whole idea of rest is one of those things, especially now there's certain philosophies out there where, you know, Oh, we're not going to do this very much. We're just going to recruit the fastest kids. We're going to have a couple of workouts that are pretty minimal. And then we're going to race a bunch. Um, and I scratch my head and say, well, then what's the job of the coach there? You know, are you recruiting coordinator? Good. Um, you do need to get a lot of kids out, but then where are you impacting them as a net positive? And so one of the things which is interesting hearing you talk, Scott, and then I don't know if you heard the podcast with Sean Burris, who coached, who is the coach of the youth world record holder, Justin Robinson in the 400 meter dash, but he mentioned the same thing. He's like, rest doesn't mean inactivity. 
Right. Rest means resting systems so that we can constantly find ways to pick up adaptations and improvements when we're targeting these necessary components of the event and the, the competition as well. So there's things you got to do to be successful at the event. And then there's things you have to do to be successful at the competition and the requirements that are unique or whatever is going on in that day. So we, I wanted the listeners to hear that that's really important. The other thing I think is important that you mentioned, which I 100%, a thousand percent, I can't agree with you more, is this idea of get out of the Judeo-Christian calendar as being a limit to how you train. What you've just heard Coach Christensen talk about is that he's giving the due to the days that he needs to give so that he can put all of the stuff in the program so the athletes see it frequently enough that it's getting improved in waves but also um, not so frequent that you're missing out on those key components to take an athlete from a certain level and get them to more of an elite status, which when I talk about this, it's one of those things where, again, your athletes evolve. And so therefore the training has to evolve to keep bumping their performances down. And if they're not seeing those times in practice, those effort levels, those ground contact times, the specific stimulus of that particular speed and interval and recovery between the interval, then they're never going to get where you need to get them, you know, and that is so important when we talk about building an athlete and then having a plan to progress them to continue to get them better and better, which is so interesting hearing you talk as I'm like, well, that's probably, I've heard that from Vern Gambetta. So did Scott teach him that? Did, did he teach Scott that? Ralph Mann, you know, obviously you mentioned uh, the biomechanist who's probably the best biomechanist in the sport of track and field in the world. And that's not a high statement or the idea that Gary Winkler, where he would put together moduled workouts, you know, creating these different groups of eight to six different activities that need to be done. And so it's really awesome to hear you talk about this and lay this out for everybody so that the coaches know um, the, the why behind what you're doing. So it's really, really, really good stuff. Yeah, well, thanks. It's like not every day am I trying to make them better distance runners as my primary focus. There's a good number of days. I'm just trying to make them better athletes. And you mentioned the biomotor skills, and I call them primary physical components, but it's the same thing. It's strength, speed, endurance, flexibility, coordination. And so many coaches and athletes, and if you just allow distance runners to train themselves, they would just go to endurance and that's all they do. And, you know, to get better as a runner, you need to become a better athlete as well. And that means improving coordination, flexibility, your speed and your strength, as well as your endurance. And there's activities that you do. And, and I talk a lot about plyometrics and, and um, uh, things we do, a lot of things I've gotten from Gambata, but um, also, you know, when you go into the weight room, you're, you're, you know that helps, especially in the middle distance area. And um, it, you're not running, but it's making you a better athlete capable of doing um, a bettering your performance. Um, so all in all, it's from what 
my high school coach, going back to that particular opening talk, was I remember the runs. That's what I remember. I remember the routes and the runs. Uh, I remember him running with us. I remember running with my teammates. I remember the runs. Um, what I don't remember is any of the other four um, biomotor um, skills, primary physical component work. And you know what, frankly, back then we didn't do any of that. And I think that's how the sport has changed. And that's why I think we've gone from zero kids in the, in the mid nineties for four years, zero high school kids breaking nine minutes uh, for uh, two miles to now 40 or 50 a year are break. It's not, it's not just in the running, it's they're better athletes and they're not coming to you as better athletes. You're building them more athletic skill. Um, uh, just because we know so much more about um, flexibility, coordination, speed and strength and how it applies to distance running. Um, um, just to own a weight room and just to go just do some bench presses. I mean, that, that's not gonna help you, but there's plenty of things you do in the weight room and in the sequence you do them that um, can help. You can do it in other ways. You talk to Gambetta, the weight room without walls concept works great for distance running. And, you know, instead of a weight room, W-A-I-T room, it, it's, it's, you can do it out, outside and um, not all of it, but a lot of it so that when you do go in the weight room, you can spend 20 minutes in there and get the things done you want. So um, you, you've got to build them to be better athletes. Um, um, it just, just the concept of distance running themselves, which is purely, well, not purely, I like to use that word a little too much. It's mostly a push off of the earth. You're pushing off. That's, <laughs> that's why you don't get much oscillation in distance. You're just pushing off. Whereas sprinters lift off. They push, but they also lift. Well, we have to build that lifting idea into our distance runners in order for them to become faster. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of different ways of, of, of adding, you know, front side, if you want to use the term, it's a little outdated, but the, use the front side work uh, to, to lift um, in um, addition to what you're already doing as a distance runner that's pushing off. So somehow you got to get that center of mass moving over your feet and, and strides at the end help a little bit, but you're already tired. And if you look at the thigh angle, when you do strides, um, that thigh, you see a lot of daylight uh, at, at, when you touch down, because they're tired, when, when they touch down, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of thigh angle, a lot of daylight between their touchdown leg and their swing leg. Whereas when you're doing these flying 30s, you're coming straight down. You're coming straight down onto it. And that's how you build quickness. That's how you build speed um, by coming straight. Instead of pendulum, which is what most distance runners do, it's all pendulum at the knees. You want your distance kids to get better, then, then, then you're not going to change the pendulum at the knees because that's what they're good at. That's what got them there. But what you've got to add is the piston motion from the hip coming down when it's time to run fast when the critical zone of the race is happening 
you got to be able to come down from the top and, and, and it, it strength, but it's also hip mobility. Uh, I think of the number of hurdles our distance runners go over in hurdle drills. I mean, it's as many as our hurdlers do. Um, uh, we do them in a different way, but we're using them for hip mobility. I never did any of that, um, uh, but it'll certainly get you faster once you open up the hip and allow the legs to piston down rather than from the hips rather than pendle them out from the knee. Too many coaches are like, ah, oh, rear. They're they're trying to fix heel striking and forefoot. I mean. That'll fix it. You got, a, you, you got an issue, you've identified it, but like so many things, you try to, 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 to defeat the disease rather than, uh, or excuse me, you try to defeat the symptoms rather than the, the disease. If you work on driving that down from the hips, when it's time to run fast, their weight will naturally move forward on, to, onto their midfoot, maybe not, truly under their spike plate, but midfoot, which is what it takes to run fast. Not, not every kid. There's always going to be some outliers that you do, you do a five mile run or you do 400s and they, they look the same. I mean, but you know, we're talking about your, your better kids here and, and that kind of work, strength work, flexibility work, um, speed work will realign those hips and, and, um, um, you know, uh, correct the pot. That's why we do core work to, for, 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 um, you know, a better posture and for ground mechanics. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things where, and you were talking about never getting really away from high velocity work all year round, or even like competitive velocity work. And again, that's something that I believe in heavily and some coaches, just don't quite get it and it's one of those things where it's like you know hey i want to build a base you know in damn past famous phrases a base of what what are we what, what base are we building here mm -hmm. and on top of that it's like but what does that look like once the athlete gets to a level of readiness why would you want them to step away from that readiness too often now you mentioned obviously having six weeks off and i'm assuming there's probably some sort of transition phase in there that you build in so that your athlete neurotic in the time that you do ask them to well i to actually break recovered. that into two three week blocks you know all right uh, around so the talk holidays. to us about that yeah talk to us about that um well you know our state cross country meet is uh like a lot of states is like early november um and then there's nike regional which we do of course um but then we have a month of some pretty nice weather in Minnesota where there's, there's not snow yet, there's not bitterness, and you're in the best shape of your life. Why would you suddenly quit? Unless you're going to another sport, which I'm, I'm all for. We have Nordic skiing in our school. I know I'm all for any of that kind of stuff. But only about a third of my 75 runners move into another sport. Two-thirds don't. And it's like, don't quit now. The, the temperature's great, and you're fit. So keep running till mid-December, um, then take three weeks off. Now that you're through the holidays and yeah, you're gonna come back and start again. It's gonna be bitter in Minnesota. Um, let's start out very gradually, almost starting out like 
like you're a true beginner again, where you're going to start at 20 miles and work your way slowly up. And, and then we do the exact same thing after our state track meet where we take, um, a lot of kids take three weeks, but the kids that run in the state meet actually only get two because of the timing. And, um, um, you know, we start up again and uh, build towards uh, cross country, but we, we, we actually transition as if, and we're not high, when you, when you're doing the intensity I'm talking about that, you don't even have to say you're not running many miles because they don't, it wouldn't work. So, you know, our, our, our biggest block of, of, of mileage is in August, just as the season's starting, because we run a pretty good summer program here. Not a lot of states can't, don't allow that, but we're up around 55 miles. But for most of the season in cross country, we're at 40 or 45 and the same in, in track. Um, so um, they might be 45 miles three weeks off from the state track meet. And then of course, you're gonna taper them a little bit. You might get down to about 35. Then they take two to three weeks off and they come back, they're starting at 20. And it's just easy mileage. Leave your watches at home. Um, I don't wanna see a watch on a kid. I'll give you the route, you just go. Um, uh, but that's not all we do. There's still, mobility work and 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 we're still doing some flying third we're still scheduling flying 30s and we're still doing that kind of thing um but um it's the transition is 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 crucial i mean it's it it's and it's both physiological and psychological um, um and that's especially important when you're working with people that of the age I work with, where they, they, they you gotta, um, you gotta respect, respect both. If the kid comes back, you know, you take some time off and all you do is think, oh God, we got to start off at 50 miles. I mean, they, they might just decide, I don't want to do that, you know? So that's why you, there's a psychological component and a physiological component, so. So with, with that being said, we're, we're rounding up here. I got one more question for you, if you're good with that. Sure. Okay. So what are three things that you would be, how do I say this? What are three things that you would like to have known your first year coaching? So if you could like transport yourself back in time and talk to yourself. That sounds like your podcast, five things I wish I knew. When... <laughs> What are three that you kind of wish you would have known in that first year? Um, well, let me start out by saying I don't, I don't spend much time regretting things like, oh, I wish I would have done that or why did I do Because I believe in context or I shouldn't say I believe in it because it's not something you actually believe in. I understand context. It's at the time. Now, later in life, it's not at that time anymore. So um, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't know what, what was gonna happen actually did happen. And things that I thought might happen 
didn't happen. So, um, but there are some things um, um, that um, uh, that I would say, and it's they're not all they're not all um, physical, but uh, I'll mention a couple physical things to start with. Um, um, and that is, I wish I would have spent more time uh, on um, the other primary physical components, speed, strength, coordination, and, and, and flexibility. Um, the flexibility work we did when I first started was um, you know, ballistic toe touching and all that other kind of stuff that uh, not only doesn't help you, um, but because it's ballistic, it, it, it actually could end up hurting you. Um, now some static, some static um, work is fine, but um, I wish I would have spent more time just on the other parts of athleticism. Um, the, 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 I guess the second thing um, would be the coordination of um, this, this notion of hard day, easy day. Like, because I definitely started out with, man, if we're gonna do four miles fast, we're going to need a easier day tomorrow. Um, and that statement's uh, not false, but it, 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 as I mentioned earlier, it's true to the point where I do need an easy day for whatever metabolic work I did. Um, but I can certainly do something different hard the next day that would have not been influenced at all by that four mile uh, hard workout. So just better sequencing of workout. And, and you know, that it's, that's an interesting point because I wonder what coaches think when they go to clinics these days. I mean, yeah, there's some gadget workouts that, you know, I might go down and I have spoken at the Missouri clinic a couple of times. Um, and, you know, you listen and maybe you pick up a couple of gadget workouts. Hey, that's a different way of doing things. But it's like, there's no real new workout. Like, I don't think anybody leaves there and think, man, people run eight miles. You know, I, I just don't think there's any, <laughs> you know, anything like, but what I think is the real benefit of clinics and what I know now that I didn't know back then was the sequencing of workouts. Just keep all your same workouts, just sequence them then different and you'll get a whole different uh, training effect and, and, and performance level. Um, so those would be two physical things. And then the psychological thing is, you know, it took me a bunch of years coaching uh, and, and, and I'm not proud of this, uh, but I was coaching distance running and I, I was coaching uh, track and field. That's what I thought I was doing. And, you know, the last half of my career, uh, I'm coaching people. And uh, everything was geared toward their running. The talk at practice was always about, 
I didn't get to know their kid's dog's name. I didn't get to know what the kid liked to do because it was just, it was about running. And if it wasn't about our running, it would be like, did you watch the Olympic trials? And we'd just talk about different kinds of running or it was always about running and, and, or they'd want to hear stories of my college days or the marathon I just got back from. And now our practices is, is uh, and have been for years. It's it, yeah, we talk about running. Don't make no mistake about it, but it's, it's, it, it's just the other side of life. It's the other things um, that, that people have passion and purpose for. And I think every athlete has a goal button somewhere. There's a goal button. They, they, they somehow joined your team. Parents made them join or they just walked in for their own free will. Um, uh, but when they come there, their goal button maybe hasn't been pushed. But it's my, my uh, you know, maybe my most important duty as a coach is to find out what their goal button is. Now, for some kids, it's just, I want to compete. I want to compete. For others, it's, I want to run. I want to run. And for others, it's just like, I just want to be a part of something here. And then you, you deal with all three of those differently. Your conversations are different. Um, uh, you know, the, the kid that just wants to be there, the first thing you ask him is, hey, what'd you have for dinner last night? Then what'd you do? Whereas the guy that wants to compete, it's a little bit more centered on, um, um, you know, the task at hand. Um, so um, uh, coaching runners more than the event, I think, is um, the third thing I would list. Or co coaching people rather than, than the event is what I would say. Yeah, it took me a really long time to figure that out, too. I um you know, that's why I went and got my master's in uh, sports psychology. And I just realized that I was woefully, um, you know, how do I, how do I say this? The, the difference between like you kind of described very strong in content curriculum when it comes to yeah. building workouts, sequencing of workouts is getting that done. But there was this huge missing element of the psychology of sport. And yeah. let's be honest, one of the things that is changing about kids it's not the raw materials. It's not the hardware. It's the software. You know, mm. when the kids are coming to us, the software is a little bit different because of their experiences, how they're being raised and all this kind of stuff. And you got to have a lot of tools in your toolkit if you're going to do that. And, and the biggest thing is they got to know you love them and you care about them. That's without a doubt, you know, and if you haven't been able to build it. And the thing is, is it, it that never stops. You have to continually feed that relationship and build on that because there are going to be things that are going to be seeds of doubt that are going to get implanted in them, whether it's their own ability, their parents, something you said, a, a person on the team that's not uh, easy to deal with, whatever it may be. And it's, and it's one of those things. And I love that because one of my big mentors growing up was a principal named Richard Overfelt. And Richard Overfelt was longtime principal, taught a bunch of master's teaching classes, and he said the same thing. He would always ask that trick question, what do you teach? And, the, you know, the te well, I teach kindergartners or yeah. I teach biology. And he's like, no, you're all wrong. You teach children. Yeah, That's what you teach. And when you finally get that perspective, and you and I, Scott, are super competitive people. So it's also about we want to we win. 
You know, yeah. we, we want to be good and we want to be competitive and the kids need to know that, but the kids also need to know, like, we're going to do this and I'm also going to love you. And I'm going to tell you, I love you. And eventually that's not going to feel weird. Mm-hmm. Eventually you're going to believe it if I've done my right. job, you know, right. and I think that that's so important. Yep. I agree. All right. So if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, reach out or connect with you, what's the best way that they can, you know, hit you up on 4th of July or Christmas <laughs> Eve for their cross country workouts? How can they, how can they get a hold of you and, and interrupt the daily life of, of coach Christensen? <laughs> well, these days um, there's, there's several ways you could, let's start out with just a, a couple plugs. You could um, like, I'm teaching level two, in two weeks, you could become a student at uh, USA Track and Field Level Two. Um, I'm also teaching uh, to USA Track and Field uh, cross country um, uh, symposiums, the, the the National Cross Country Schools. So every summer I teach. You could become a student in there, and then we could continue our relationship. Um, you could. I think the best, and it, it, I tell them the same thing I'll tell your audience here, is it's pretty easy to find me at Stillwater High School. Um, my name is hard to spell, but everything else is easy to email. And it's kind of looks like the email of a lot of different coaches. It's just my last name, C-H-R-I-S-T-E-N-S-E-N, then an S at the end for Scott. That's not plural Christiansen's that asks for Scott at stillwaterschools.org. Uh, and that, that gets to me. And uh, I, I think that I, I try to answer uh, now I'll probably get deluged, but I'll tell you my goal and it always has been my goal. And this might tell you a little bit about my passion um, in coaches education is I try to answer every email within 24 hours. Now, if I'm out on the river camping, kayaking, or on a ski trip, you've got to allow me a little grace on that. But the other 50 weeks out of the year, I pretty much answer everybody uh, within 24 hours. Um, so, um, because I know you're, you didn't write me to say, hey, when you think of it, you might say that, oh, if you get time, but you know what? That's not really what they're doing. They, they got something on their mind. They want to deal with it and they're just being nice. I know that. So it's like, well, I want to deal with it right now. So I don't have a bunch of these. So, um, and, and I'll, I, I'll give you the answer. I mean, I, it may not be the right answer or the answer you're looking for um, um, in, in your mind, the right answer, but I'll give you an answer that's based on um, science in most cases, but maybe also some experience if that's, uh, what's called for. Uh, but I will, I'm not going to hammer around, hem and haw around and, 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 um, I'm a science guy. I try to get to the point for better or worse. I try to get to the point. Well, awesome, Scott. I super appreciate you being on with us today. I know a lot of coaches got a lot of value. Um, people can't really see this because we don't have it on camera, but I got a whole page of notes that I was writing down as you were talking. So I got some questions for you that I might be sending you an email uh, about as well, but um, it's really been valuable and I appreciate you coming on. And I think, I mean, to be honest, we're going to have to have you come on in a month or so or something, maybe again, if you're down for it, because there's so much more ground 
Um, I know you are willing to well, share. Well, I love your work. So I, I, I love it. I mean, I've got the Sprinter's um, Compendium right with me, right next to me here. And every time I feel like, oh man, I got a lot of work. I look at that book and think, look how much work went into this book by Ryan. So um, it, it, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. So well, I, I, I'm you. always available to be on your podcast. I appreciate it. Well, thank you. Well, to the listeners, make sure that you share this out. Um, obviously, we try to mix up who we've got on here from distance to strength and conditioning, track people to football people and everything in between. So if you like this, share this. This is the whole point of kind of what Scott was talking about his why is we want to elevate the sport. We want to elevate coaches and we want to elevate the athletes that they're working with. And the only way that this can happen is that if this information gets shared out so that it can help others provide context, experience, all that kind of stuff. So to the listeners, remember, be smart, be safe. We love you. Peace out.